The opinions expressed on Tomahawk Talk do not reflect that of WVFS Tallahassee. Second and nine, Travis will throw, fires it up near a sideline. Johnny Wilson, one-handed catch, skips a tackle, 45-40, 35-30, near sideline, a full race, 15, 10, 5, he dives, touchdown! Touchdown, Florida State, touchdown, FSU, here's Johnny! Florida State football back in the win column for the first time in over a month. It is a happy Halloween to you and how you be. William Haynes here, you there at 701 on this victory Monday night. Florida State over Georgia Tech 41 to 16. As I said, over a month, the, the three-game losing streak, the bye week, but now back on the winning side of things. This is Tomahawk Talk, the weekly sports power hour on the voice of Florida State, WVFS Tallahassee 89.7 FM. Also streaming online, WVFS. .fsu.edu and Tomahawk Talk as always available the next day as a podcast. So here we are on a Halloween Monday night. Uh, some some Halloween costumes and things of that nature. It's, it is that time of year as we're into the the deeper fall. But uh, and speaking of that, usually when I introduce the crew, ask them some questions how they've been. I want to change it up a little bit in the the spirit of the season. Either. Tell me who you were for Halloween, who you're going to be for Halloween, maybe tonight, or your favorite Halloween candy, because that's always a fantastic conversation to have. So, William Haynes here, our co-host Jackson Bakich, we'll start with you. Jackson, how are you? Um, I'll tell you what, if I was any spookier, I'd be dead. I mean, it's it's Halloween, baby. We're here. Uh, it's October 31st. Can y'all believe it? I remember New Year's Eve. It felt like a few weeks ago. Um, but I was, I was Jesse for Halloween from... Uh, the from Breaking Bad, maybe you know the greatest show ever, other than The Wire. Um, but uh, you know, Mr. White, you know we had a great Halloween party last night, and you know if it could make money, we'd make like mad stacks, yo. So that's my Jesse impression, and my favorite Halloween candy. Ooh, that's tough. You know, I haven't had candy corn all month. But candy corn is a very underrated candy. Um, my uncle loves candy corn. Uh, <laughs> we had great stories about him, but um, I'm probably gonna have to go with with Snickers. Snickers is just a top tier candy in the fun size that tastes great too. Um, it kind they're not great in like ice cream. Like if you ever go to a Dairy Queen, you get a you, know, you get a Snickers Blizzard. I cracked a tooth on that once. So that was not fun. But I'm going with Snickers as my my number one pick for Halloween candy. That's a good pick. I w- yeah, I would go either the Milky Way or the Twix, those those bite-sized little candy yep, bars. Yeah, those are solid. The right side or left side? Right Twix. Absolutely. Got to be right Twix. And uh, it was a perfect partnership, me and you. You were Jesse. I was was Walter White. You actually have the, the Walter White jacket on right now. And uh, I, I shaved my head freshly bald. That was kind of a, a bold strategy for me to take, but it's uh, it's definitely it's an experiment. Off. It paid off in a big way. So the panelists to our right, we'll start with you, Mr. Jack Arducer. You were on a couple weeks ago. Great to have you back on. You do the the sports updates at the top or at the bottom of the five o'clock hour. So you've been talking sports already today. But uh, how are you? I'm doing well. What's going on? This Halloween um, did a little different. Dressed up as Mario. Um, but my favorite costume I did in the past was the Roaring Twenties Great Gatsby type outfit. Very fun. And I have to disagree with you guys. Um, Twix, no. Uh, I'm a big fan of Reese's or M&M's. Yep. 
I, the peanut butter combo is pretty good uh, with M and M's. I can eat both at the same time. Yeah, it's not. A, that's not a bad idea. Honestly, mm-hmm. that's that might be revolutionary. There, you mix M and M's, but you have the peanut butter M and M's. How do you feel about peanut butter M and M's? They're just as good. Um, you can go either way. I, I don't really mind M and M's. Third top tier candy bar yeah. choice for sure. But are they a candy? Can you put them in the candy bar category? I guess not. If you want to put it that way. Yeah. It's not a bar. They're pieces. That's true. Whatever you want to call them. Candied pieces. Yeah, I think I think that's like Reese's pieces, Reese's pieces, as some might call them. Um, yeah, definitely don't fit into that bar category. But Halloween candy. That's a great. That's a great pick. Yes, sir. And rounding out the crew, Jacob Smith. Jacob, good to have you in as well. Amazing to be back here. Feels like a homecoming almost, you know. Uh, but Halloween, God only knows why I decided to dress up in 80-degree weather as Patrick Bateman from American Psycho. For those who don't know, a character who wears a full suit and tie and as well as a raincoat. So that was probably not one of my smarter choices in life. Uh, but I also have to disagree with you two on the whole candy corn debate. If you like candy corn, no, you don't. That's my <laughs> yeah, official it's delicious. take. It's delicious. It's what are you talking about? Sugary wax is what it's it is. It's so good. It's so good. You like you have to have it during Halloween. Though. You can't just have it any time. I'm I'm not a I'm definitely not a candy corn year round advocate. I'm a Halloween candy corn ad, candy corn advocate. And there's differences. You know, there's levels to this, right? Candy corn. It's just so nostalgic. Am I? Maybe is it the nostalgia that I'm that I'm really eating and craving, possibly. But I, I think on its face, candy corn is a solid solid product. All right, well, some some good Halloween candy talk here. Many other things to get into. And uh, Jack Oliaro, the producer, peeking in from behind the glass. Uh, another note before we get started. Aria Masudi, the legend who we had in studio last week. Uh, I think we did finally, or we're getting close to getting that show uploaded. We had some problems with uh, getting it recorded. It went live without a hitch, and it was great to have him have him in and talk about some of his broadcasting career and things of that nature. He's actually calling the uh, the ACC Women's Soccer Tournament, I believe, as we speak. So uh, shout-out to Aria Masudi, and it was a great show. Make sure to check it out if you have not already. But the slate for tonight, FSU Georgia Tech recap. We are previewing the Miami game this Saturday. We will be joined by Nick Marino at 720. He is the sports director of WVUM, which is the, the uh, student station for the University of Miami, 720. Uh, Jack Oliaro with Seminole Segment, and then in the back half of the show, some Major League Baseball. World Series Game 3 was postponed uh, to a later date, but we have the first couple games to talk about at least, and some NFL. A number to call the show, 850-644-1837. But without further ado, Florida State defeats Georgia Tech 41-16. to uh, Coming into the game, Florida State was out of the bye with a three-game losing streak after maybe the toughest part of their schedule, so looking to get back on the right side of things. They're facing a Georgia Tech team with an interim coach. Uh, Their starting quarterback was out, Jeff Sims, who had been injured the previous week. That was a conversation uh, who was going to play. Georgia Tech ended up using a couple quarterbacks uh, in the game. And uh, another thing that was interesting, the White Helmets, I want to get your guys' thoughts later on in the show um, after, but the first time Florida State had worn White Helmets at home since the 1950s, I thought that was uh, an interesting look, to say the least. Uh, and then uh, getting into the actual game, started off uh, Chief Osceola and Renegade running up to midfield, but passing off the spear to members of the Seminole Tribe of Florida to plant the spear at midfield. That was a really cool moment. Got the crowd fired up, and uh, 
it's always great to see how this university uh, continues that relationship with the Seminole Tribe of Florida. And so uh, started the, the afternoon off in a really good way, first noon game of the year. A sloppy first quarter keeps Georgia Tech in the game probably longer than it should have been. Georgia Tech, no first downs in the quarter, but it ended. They were only down 7-3, to three, so no first downs, but they were able to get points regardless. Uh, Zach Gibson, the quarterback, starts. He only played a couple series. Then it was the the freshman, Zach Pyron, that played the rest of the game. Uh, and it was, it was tough sledding for them, really, for the whole 60 minutes. Florida State turnover on down. Uh, at the Georgia Tech 33, a couple of drops on that that drive. Preston Daniel and, and Crenshaw Portier, uh, the drive stalled out, and that's that's been a problem during that losing streak. Uh, the, the next drive, Florida State gets all the way to the goal line. A couple of timeouts in that sequence where they didn't get the right personnel on the field, maybe shaking off some rust after the bye. And the goal line sequence ends with a wildcat fumble. Lawrence Toafili not able to handle the snap, and, and Georgia Tech returns it all the way uh, deep into to Seminole territory. Uh, but like I said, the defense playing well kind of kept them in it, but it was low scoring to start. Uh, Florida State finally gets on the board. A drive aided by a roughing the passer on third and 20, a drive that was otherwise dead to rights. Continued a pass interference and uh, a Lawrence Tofili runoff tackle uh, opened the, the scoring there um, for the first touchdown of the game. Uh, by the end of the first quarter, Florida State had 131 total yards. Georgia Tech had one. Uh, moving on to the second quarter, Florida State forces punts on all four second quarter possessions for Tech. Three of those four were three and out, so the dominance continues. Uh, the, the, the Here's Johnny call you heard at the top of the show from Jeff Colhane and the, the Seminoles radio network uh, to pick up the pace. That 78-yard catch and run was uh, career longs, both for Jordan Travis passing and Johnny Wilson receiving. That made it 14-3. Toa Feely fumbles again later in that quarter, and then it was uh, another con- Somewhat controversial play. Cameron McDonald, a 43-yard reception, was wiped off the board after Johnny Wilson committed quote-unquote pass interference. I'm not so sure about that one. Uh, But the next play, very next play, Lawrence Toafili, 62-yard touchdown catch. William Floyd calling it poetic justice on the broadcast, and it was. The numbers at halftime, 360 to 24 yards, 17 first downs to one, and Florida State's defense had eight tackles for loss at the halftime break. And uh, the second half, the dominance continues. Florida State holds the ball for nearly 18 minutes in the second half. They score on all three of their possessions in that half. Uh, Georgia Tech went onside kick out of the break, scored within two minutes. That made it 24-10. to 10. You're thinking, is this going to be one of those weird days? But uh, the Noles lock it down after that. 12-play, 91-yard drive, about five minutes. A 13-play, 74-yard drive in six minutes. That ends in a field goal. And a 12-play, 97-yard drive at the end of the game where the backup running backs, Rodney Hill and a great story in C.J. Campbell were toting the rock there late in the day. So a great win for the Knowles. They get back in the win column. They're 5-3. and three. Did not play a great Georgia Tech team. Not a great spot. Uh, but want to go around the room. Jackson, we'll start with you. Just opening thoughts uh, about this win. Well, I mean, Florida State, they took care of business. Uh, it felt weird watching a Florida State team win after three straight weeks of losses. Um, but I, I will say, initial thoughts, um, like I said, took care of business. But it, it, there was things, five and three now, so eight, nine, ten weeks into the season, including those bye weeks, and of course you have fall camp. Um, penalties were atrocious. That was some of the – since Mike Norvell has, has come to Florida State, um, 104 penalty yards, I'm not sure exactly how many – 
they've had under Coach Norvell uh, at his time at Florida State. But um, it felt like one of the most penalized games I'd seen in a while. And not to be a Debbie Downer, but uh, – and then also you have the miscues. Um, especially at the goal line, this is uh, appeared to be a problem for Florida State. They have a – and they've, ha- they've been so good statistically at scoring in the red zone. Um, but, you know, you, you take a look at the LSU game there at the end. You take a look at uh, playing against Clemson. You have uh, four plays on goal, and you have three straight plays where you go to Johnny Wilson on the fade. And then here, you, you uh, after a few timeouts, you fumble the ball on the one-yard one line. Um, so if Florida State plans on going to Miami, we're going to talk about this later, and, and winning on the road in a big heated rivalry game, they have to clean up the, mis- the, the miscues. They cannot give Miami any chance um, to steal the, game away, steal the game away from them. Florida State entered the day 106th nationally in red zone offense. They had a fumble at the goal line and a couple of goal-to-goal situations where they had to settle for field goals. You mentioned the turnover in that LSU game. Uh, they had that great streak headed into this year in red zone efficiency, but it's it's really taken a backseat since then. But uh, moving over to the panel and, uh, and Jack and Jacob, opening thoughts, initial thoughts for this win. Well, if the Florida State Seminoles want a good bowl game matchup, if they want <clears throat> a top 25 ranking, if they want to finish the season strong, they do need to clean up the offensive turnovers. They need to clean up the small mistakes. There's a lot of good going for this team. Jordan Travis had one of his best games in his football career. He didn't even utilize his legs. It was solely passing. It was very impressive. Tewa Philly did amazing receiving and rushing, but then again, he had the fumbles. So it's just cleaning up the small mistakes. Well, they're not small, but at the end of the day, with a 41-16 win, they may seem small, but they really are impacting this team. And this this win could have even been more substantial if we had cleaned up those small mistakes. And that go, you see 642 total yards. You see the third down conversions are good, but the small mistakes they add up. And to pivot off that, if Florida had that type of game against Clemson or against NC State when they had Devin Leary or against Wake Forest, there was no chance of them winning that game at all. Um, So if they plan on beating Florida down the road, like you said, if they plan on beating uh, a good bowl team, uh, they can't have those types of games. And um, you don't want to say play down to the level of your competition, but um, that game was a lot closer in the first half than it needed to be. Um, But with that being said, Despite all that, they played a one. They played a great game. Um, like you're saying, Jordan Travis had a great day. Uh, everybody on the ground, and especially the new blows, we're going to get into that. Had a great day. Uh, so there was a lot of positives to take out of this. But to address it, moving on, Coach Norvell really, really uh, needs to get back to basics. Maybe this week and next week. Jacob, what do you think about the game? You know, forty-one sixteen. I honestly, as as just a casual fan, I honestly have no complaints whatsoever. You know, Jordan Travis, he is the real deal. Uh, Lawrence Toafili, uh, Ontavia Wilson, you know, they're all amazing. You know, I would honestly say that there is absolutely nothing to complain about this game. You know, it's 16 points for Georgia Tech. Yeah, that is something to be a little bit concerned about, given that, given that our defense uh well, dropped those 16 points. But, you know, I think in the grand scheme of things, you know, this team may have a possibility of getting back into that top 25. I think you're right. I think if they play their cards right, because the way the schedule lines up, they're, uh, that definitely could be, and, and this Saturday will go a long way in that. 
want to close out the negatives because there's a lot of good stuff to get to. They lose the turnover battle two to nothing. Their last four games, their defense has only faced one turnover. Talking about Florida State and Jackson mentioned a few weeks ago that that one turnover was not did not even aid Florida State. It was an interception on a fourth down that actually affected the field position. So defense is not making game changing plays in that side of things. Uh, but as far as tackles for loss and, and yards allowed. Fantastic. Fabian Lovett, the defensive tackle, maybe the leader of this team, returns for the first time in several weeks. The defense has 10 tackles for loss. Georgia Tech had only 264 yards on the day. Two for 13 on third downs, ran for only 66 yards, and uh, they held the ball for only you know 25 minutes. I mentioned all the three and outs. The defense, they were aggressive, and they got off the field a lot in a hurry. And at one point, Georgia Tech had 24 yards, and they had to run 24 plays. So, I mean, I, I, that was my, halftime, I believe. Yeah, and the defense looked stupendous. The first three points that were scored weren't even their fault. They forced a, a three and out um, after that, that long fumble recovery. But, um, and, you know, right there, that, that's a 14-point that's a swing, similar to the Syracuse-Clemson game we saw a couple weeks ago. Uh, so this game wasn't that – I know 41-16 to 16 is not close, but the game wasn't even that close. The last touchdown was in garbage time. They weren't even allowed to uh, kick, a, kick the extra point. So, um, you know, that game could have easily have been – actually, excuse me, it was a 10-point swing um, from that fumble recovery. But uh, that game could have easily been – a whole lot more to a whole lot little so but in order to beat good teams Florida State has to stress the little things they have to protect the football and they have to uh, stop with the, with the stupid penalty especially coming out of timeouts Jordan Travis we mentioned a career day for him 396 yards three touchdowns no interceptions over 10 yards per attempt, really attacking downfield, which was good to see. Uh, receivers just on streak routes, beating their man, one-on-one coverage. Uh, but I think a huge part in this, too, is the pass protection was excellent. Uh, they did a good job of picking up the blitz. Travis Wood recognized the blitz seemingly right off the bat and just attacked the weak side of the field where the numbers advantage was. Um, and I think this was a great example of, because Travis probably has another year or so left here, uh, depending on where he decides to go, this is the ceiling of what this offense is. When you give him time to sit back there and throw and make his reads, you're going to score 41 points and you're going to have you know nearly 650 total yards. Yeah, I mean, I I, I was talking with a, with a fellow student during the game, and um, he was trying to convince myself and others around me that Jordan Travis is the best quarterback in all of college football. Um, I don't know uh, what was in his water bottle, but. Uh, what I will say is I think Jordan Travis might be the best quarterback in the country for this for this system. Um, and maybe you can throw in a C.J. Stroud or a Hendon Hooker, and we can debate that. But uh, Jordan Travis, you know, he makes the offensive line look stupendous. And the offensive line has gotten so much better. I think we can all agree on that. They've gotten a whole lot better. Uh, but for this system, Jordan Travis fits like a glove. He is what Florida State needs at this time. And when, when you allow him to flourish, uh, what we saw on Saturday is exactly what's going to happen. Yeah, Travis uh, was got put on all the, the quarterback award watch lists, and some of those he was already on. Uh, Dimitri Emanuel, one of the offensive line, had a perfect game. I think we tweeted out at V89 Sports. It was, you know, no hurries, no hits, no sacks. And he's a guy, uh, kind of a project pickup from Charlotte uh, in the transfer portal. Uh, that's gone a long way for them. 
and yeah, I I do somewhat agree. He's the Travis, the perfect guy for this system. I think he's picked it up well. He's been in this long enough, and also too. And I I mean no disrespect to Georgia Tech when I say this. It looked a lot like the Duquesne game where you were just blowing the other team off the ball and, and getting a lot of success. Uh, but with that, Florida State forty-one sixteen over Georgia Tech. But we move we shift our attention ahead now to the Miami game this Saturday. And joining us now on Tomahawk Talk via the, t- the telephone with William, Jackson, Jack, and Jacob, it's the sports director of WVUM, Nick Marino. Nick, thanks for joining the show. How are you? Appreciate it. Appreciate you having on. Uh, doing good. How are you guys doing? Doing fantastic, Nick. I was uh, really intrigued. We, we've done this pretty much all season having the, the guest writers and broadcasters from other schools, but I did a little digging into WVUM. There's some great stuff. You guys have play-by-play for sports. I I can barely believe my own eyes seeing that. Tell me what that's like. You guys call the call the games. Yeah, so uh, we, we're pretty lucky here at WVUM. We've got the chance to broadcast every home game for all of our teams here on campus. So that includes football, men's and women's basketball, baseball, um, soccer, and volleyball. And then we're also the flagship station for women's basketball and baseball, which means we have one broadcaster for women's basketball, and then two for baseball at um, every game, home, away, or neutral site. So um, we got we're, we're pretty lucky with the chances we got here. It's a pretty pretty good setup we have. It sounds like it, and it's it's great to have you because I know not only do you do your duties with the radio, but you write for the student paper as well. You're the guy uh, to talk Miami Hurricanes, and so we'll start there. Just a, just an overview of what this 2022 season has been. For the Hurricanes, it's been a lot of ups and downs and uh, a lot of controversy just in that um, not living up to what people expected, perhaps. Yeah, I think um, I think the reasonable fans after Mario Cristobal and the new staff came in knew that this was not going to be a overnight switch with this Miami team coming off of the disappointing 6-6 six six, uh, year last year with Manny Diaz and bringing in not only Cristobal but new athletic director Dan Radakovich who came over from Clemson and then an entire new um, offensive staff, including uh, Josh Gaddis, who was the offensive coordinator at Michigan last year, new defensive coordinator, pretty much a new entire staff. But it was going to take a little bit of time for this new staff to, one, kind of get integrated to the Miami team, and two, it'll take a couple of years for them to get their new recruits into this team as well. But you talk about a disappointing season. Miami's sitting at 4-4 four and four right now, and it has been disappointing, not necessarily the 4-4 four and four record, but just the way this team has lost some games this year. Of course, um, the loss to Middle Tennessee State at home earlier and then the double-digit loss to Duke just last weekend and then being able to pull out a two-point win with no touchdowns against Virginia. I guess you can look at it as a positive getting back in the win column, but I would say up and down is definitely the best way to describe how the Hurricanes have looked so far. The Miami, there's rather the Manny Diaz era ends last year, 7-5 and five campaign, gives way to year one for Mario Cristobal. Is there any buyer's remorse for Miami? What has the, the year one experience been like, him implementing his systems and getting his players in there and all that? I wouldn't say there's buyer remorse, or at least from the reasonable Miami fans that you would talk to. I did think fans maybe had a little bit over-realistic expectations, just looking at where the roster was and knowing that Mario Cristobal and his staff have proven that they're going to get results on the recruiting trail. It's just it's going to take a couple of years for – them to get those players in from high school and I think just we keep saying up and down that's been the best way to describe it is Miami was the number 16 team in the country preseason and the team just hasn't looked like that right now they're four and four and they could easily be 
three and five. A couple plays go different last weekend in Charlottesville against the Cavaliers. So it's been an up and down season, especially with injuries have played a big part in Miami's struggles. They've really been hit with injuries at both uh, skill positions and uh, along the offensive line and the defensive side as well. But with four and four and still a lot to play for in the Coastal right now, it's more about getting a bowl berth for Miami than anything else. Gotcha, gotcha. You you bring up the injuries. A, a guy that a lot of Florida State fans will remember from his play in the matchup in 2021, the quarterback, Tyler Van Dyke. He left the Duke game a couple weeks ago, did not play last week with uh, – or did not play against Virginia. I believe it was the shoulder. Do you think he plays? And if he does, will he be limited in his abilities? Yeah, this is something that's interesting. Mario Cristobal today in his press conference was very coy, saying that uh, TVD is – progressing in that he was preparing to play all three quarterbacks um, on Saturday against Florida State. Tyler Van Dyke, the primary backup, Jake Garcia, and then the third-string guy, uh, true freshman, Ja'Curry Brown, who's only attempted three passes this year, but he's been thrown in a lot of run packages trying to show off his athleticism. I think optimistic fans say Van Dyke might be able to play, but I would say it's unlikely. Even if he does, I do think it would be on a limited basis on Saturday. Gotcha. Uh, Nick, this is Jackson here. Um, Miami fans, you know, they usually show out for this game. Uh, it's a great rivalry. Everybody knows that. Uh, so what's the buzz around the Canvas community this time of the year? Yeah, so you talk about attendance, and that's something that, to be honest, has been pretty lacking from Miami fans, and especially Miami students. Um, I'm not sure if you guys know, but Hard Rock Stadium is about a 45-minute to one-hour drive from campus there is free shuttles but it's a lot to ask students committing all day to a team that is four and four right now was around 500 last year and it hasn't been producing but i will say the buzz around the student community is that this is the one game of the year that if you are going to go to a game it's going to be this one i would expect a pretty good student crowd for this game especially with it being at night as well so the tailgates for the students will be able to be a little bit later in the afternoon which i think will help increase third and tune out so i think this will be the best game of the year in terms of um the miami student crowd for sure miami's offense they've been absolutely dreadful running the ball at times this season strength in the trenches is one of cristobal's signatures potentially i mean fsu had 10 tackles for loss last week are we potentially looking at a situation where there's no run game and a quarterback with miami with maybe a bad shoulder or a backup having to throw it 50 times because that's a situation they've been in a few times this year. Yeah, and if that were to be the case, that would not be a uh, successful equation for Miami. Jake Garcia, just um, 15% or 50% passing percentage last week against Virginia, just 149 yards. And Miami really did have to rely on that run game versus Virginia. They were uh, able to have our lead back. Henry Parrish Jr. was able to get over 100 yards. You talk about some of the struggles in the trenches this year and that game against middle Tennessee, uh, Miami just wasn't able to run the ball at all. And they were relying on their quarterback, like you said, to throw the ball 50 times. And I think part of that can be contributed to the offensive line has went through a number of injuries this year. But I think that might be what decides this game um, against you guys on Saturday. It's going to be if Miami can establish the run game and keep the Florida state defense off and honest, beg your pardon, because of the backup quarterback and maybe a third string quarterback or a, really limited Tyler Van Dyke. If Miami gets behind the sticks and is, like you said, forced to throw it 40 or 50 times, I think it might be a good night for the Seminoles. Which players in the orange and green should FSU fans be looking out for on Saturday? Any particular players or any particular position groups that are areas of strength for the team? 
Offensively, looking out for two receivers, I would mention Colby Young and um, also Xavier Restrepo. Colby Young is a true freshman who did not get his first snap until the fifth game of the season versus UNC, but since then he's already up to being Miami's second leading receiver, 23 catches for 326 yards and four touchdowns already on the year from someone who didn't get his first snap until the fourth quarter in the UNC game. He's been Miami's most explosive offensive threat. And then Xavier Restrepo as well. He went down midway through the second game of the year, but before that he was already up to 183 receiving yards in two games. Yes, it was against uh, FCS and lower competition against Southern Mississippi, but those are the two guys to look out for on offense and then on defense, safety, James Williams, former five-star recruit, number one safety in the country coming out of high school. He was out versus Virginia on Saturday, but is expected to play, and um, he's got to really watch out for on the second level on the defensive side. Uh, cover corners for Miami. Do they have guys that can play man-to-man? Florida State's got, you know, six-foot-seven Johnny Wilson that went off last week, some real weapons. Do you think Miami's going to just line up one-on-one, or are they going to try and blanket guys? The strength of this Miami defense has been the pass rush. The defensive line has been one of the most reliable in the country. And in terms of the corners, Miami doesn't really have guys who you're too confident with on the outside, one-on-one. Tyreek Stevenson, a second-year player, transferred over from the Georgia Bulldogs. He's been Miami's top corner, and he's the one with the most ability. But outside of that, looking at the corner depth, it's a bunch of experienced guys but who are probably better off served in a reserve role that have now getting elevated to starter due to a couple of these injuries and just the lack of real talent out there on the outside. So I think it all kind of comes back down to the trenches. Miami's going to have to get that pass rush working because if they give Jordan Travis time in the pocket and like you mentioned, the weapons you guys have on the outside, it'd be a long night if Miami's not able to get to the quarterback. All right, last thing I got for you. I'd love to get a score prediction if you have one and just uh, how you think this game goes down on Saturday night. Yeah, well, I'm going to say it's going to be low scoring. The Miami defense, surprisingly, has been the strength of this team. I think offensively they're going to have to, if they want a chance, they're going to have to take care of the ball in terms of managing the time of possession, trying to run it in the trenches. But even as optimistic as a Miami fan right now, I'll go with 21-17 Florida State in a close one. All right, I like it. Nick Marino, uh, sports director for WVUM, uh, amongst many other things. It was great talking to you about uh, the, the the student radio over there, Miami football, and uh, also wanted to congratulate you with your gig this summer or upcoming with the Rochester uh, Honkers. So, Nick Marino, great talking with you. Thanks so much for the time. Appreciate it, guys. Thanks for having us on, and uh, hope you guys have a good call Saturday. All right, appreciate it. There he goes, Nick Marino. That was a great call, one of the best we've had this year. It seems like I say that every week, but, I mean, he was really uh, informative, and uh, he was clear-cut. He's like, you know. You I know his stuff, yeah. Yeah, and he, he would say, you know, if, if you're being a realistic, you know, Miami observer, you know, X, Y, Z, which uh, he had some great points about that. But as we return to the studio, let's let's preview this game. 7.30 on ABC. I believe this is another Kirk Herb Street chris Fowler game. I don't know for sure. Uh, I think they're doing the, the, the Bama-LSU game, so maybe not. But FSU at 5-3, and 3-3 three, three and three in ACC play. Travel down to Miami at 4-4. Four and four. They are also 3-3 three and three in ACC play. The spread, Miami, or rather FSU opened and it stayed favored by 7.5. So they're favored by about a touchdown on the road in what will probably be a tough road environment. Also worth noting, Miami, they're 1-7 against the spread this year. 
so if that holds, I mean, they're you know potentially looking at a double-digit loss depending on how things go. But uh, the, the ESPN Football Power Index gives Florida State a 60% chance to win. Uh, Miami has won four of the last five. Uh, meetings Florida State won obviously last year and before that you have to go all the way back to 2016 the block at the rock Demarcus Walker uh, Mike Norvell is one and one he did not travel with the team in 2020 down to Miami with uh, COVID protocol so this is his first trip down there for this rivalry game and uh, Miami even laying some absolute eggs on offense at times this year their per game offense is still pretty much on par with Florida State you look at points per game yards per game they're almost pretty much equal so go, go let's go around the room predictions uh, score predictions and uh, what is FSU gonna have to do to win well like I was saying earlier they're gonna be in a tough road environment um, haven't really been in one all year unless you unless you count uh, you know Louisiana down there in New Orleans, um, but you know that's fifty percent of a you know sixty-five thousand crowd. Uh, I Florida State has to, you know, keep the ball in their own hands. They can't turn the ball over. Got to limit the penalties, and they can't let the emotions of the game get to them. Um, you know, this game gets chippy. They have to keep their heads up, and I, I'm feeling a. 27-22 Florida State victory. All right. I got it. 31-24. to Florida State offense has been showing up recently. They put up 28 points against Clemson. They put up 41 last week. I think despite all the mistakes that are going on with this team, I think this offense will still prevail. Miami's defense, there's some talent there. Florida State defense, we have some talent here. I think we're going to hold them down. I think we're going to pull ahead by a touchdown. Jacob? You know, as I said, Jordan Travis is the man. So I'm going to say 24-6 to Florida State, merely because our offense played spectacularly last week against Tech, and so I believe that that's going to carry over into this game. Okay, interesting. Jackson, I, I like what you said about the true road test. I actually had this on my notepad because you look at it. I mean, the, the game in New Orleans was not that way. They went to Louisville on a Friday night, but that's, you know, this is not it's not close to what they're going to see in Miami and there's no hatred in louisville that's true i mean you look at the other you know nc state you know the same situation even at home the penalties have been bad the turnovers have been bad you every metric you look at you know they couldn't even get the right personnel in on the goal line you look at every metric about composure of a team and that that's at home that's with you know the 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 crowd behind you what is it going to be like when you know it's tough sledding and maybe you're down 10 in the second quarter and the crowd is on their feet and you're having false starts and all these kind of things. Are they going to be able to have that uh, composure to to stay in it and and continue to fight? So that's that is uh, an interesting caveat for me. But uh, whether it's Tyler Van Dyke or the backup Garcia, uh, I expect the Miami quarterback play to be poor. Um, and Florida State healthy finally defensively. Robert Cooper and Fabian Lovett up the middle. Tatum Bethune, he's been great all year at linebacker. He had a, he had a great play in coverage. I don't know if you saw that uh, on Saturday. An absolute wonderful play. Uh, he can move. He, he's a dog. Amari Gaynor is finally back from injury. So th- the front seven is good. They're going to be ready to stop the run. And so if Miami's leaning on the run game, they can't do it, and the quarterback play is bad, that's a situation where they're not going to be able to move the ball a ton. 
I see this being a 10-point victory for Florida State, 27-17, relatively low scoring. The over-under on this game, by the way, is 53. That's a, maybe a little bit high, but who knows? These games are always weird, and that, it will continue to be that way. But that's it for the first half of the show. Coming up right now is seminal segment with Jack Oliaro. Jack, take it away. Thank you, William. What's good, everyone? Happy Halloween from me, Jack Oliaro. We'll be routing off the seminal segment, relaying the latest and greatest in all of Florida State's athletics. Before we get into that, I'd like to give my thoughts on this weekend's clash with Miami. I think the offense will carry over its performance from the Tech game into Miami Gardens, besides that clunky opening 15 minutes. Uh, defensively, they'll hold their own up front and wreak havoc, but the secondary will be asked questions that Tyler Van Dyke or Jake Garcia could capitalize on. Big picture, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that a victory for FSU will be a bowl, makes them bowl eligible or that the Canes have had a rough season. It's prime time under the lights at Hard Rock where your season will be remembered by these moments. Echoes of wide lefts, wide rights, the muffs, the blocks, the rallies, the spikes. These types of games are why we love college football and why this will be one of the greatest matchups, or this is one of the greatest matchups in collegiate football. I think this will be a shootout, and I'll take Florida State 41, Miami 31. But let's head to Seminole Soccer Complex where the fifth-ranked Florida State soccer team hosted the Virginia Tech Hokies in the final regular season match of the season. Seminoles had lost the prior week to number 2 North Carolina at home, 1-2, but traveled up to the 19th-ranked Pittsburgh Panthers and left with a 1-0 victory. The hunt for the top two spots in the ACC was on. North Carolina sealed that number one spot with a 2-0 victory over Louisville, but that final spot came down to Notre Dame and Florida State. They were both tied at seven, seven wins and two losses, both tied on goal difference, but the head-to-head fell to the Irish. Florida State could only focus on their match and hope that they scored enough goals or see Notre Dame draw or lose. They got off to a fast start with two goals in the opening five minutes by Leilani Nesbeth and Oni Echigini. Echigini would score the next goal in the 75th minute for the brace and the three-goal cushion before VT struck back to make a 3-1. The game was petering out before a hokey challenge in the box made way for one of the most experienced Seminoles in program history, Clara Robbins. She converted the penalty in the final minute to cap off the victory at 4-1 and her time as a Seminole. Uh, Robbins, along with Jenna Nicewanger and Heather, Heather Payne, made their final appearances during the senior night, being recognized for their illustrious time in Tallahassee. Florida State earned the victory and bumped their goal margin to three, while Notre Dame drew 2-2 at Duke, meaning the Knowles finished as co-ACC regular season champions and claimed the final spot in the ACC semifinals. Notre Dame took the three spot. They also defeated Pittsburgh on penalties to earn a date in the semifinals with the Seminoles. In the other quarterfinal match, Duke upset Virginia to face their in-state rivals, North Carolina. So the semifinals will take place in Cary, North Carolina on Thursday. Florida State playing at 8 p.m. on the ACC Network. If they advance, they'll play in the championship, looking to repeat as ACC tournament champions and play on Sunday at noon on ESPNU. Moving from the pitch to the court, where Florida State volleyball team were on the road with trips to the to the Northeast for Syracuse and Boston College. The Knowles dominated for the first two sets before dropping the third and then claiming the fourth for the victory, Corey Lewis and Emma Clothier uh, leading the way. Uh, the game against Boston College had the exact opposite result at 3-1 to the Eagles. Uh, the Eagles controlled the game throughout the match and had nearly 60 assists playing a stronger team game, allowing them to take the match. Uh, the Seminoles will be back in Tallahassee for senior night this Friday against Clemson and then the 10th-ranked Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets on Sunday afternoon. The Clemson game will be on 8 p.m. At, on ACC Network, while the Georgia Tech game will be at 1 p.m. on ACC Network Extra. And to wrap up, before we go back into the studio, we had a weekend full of 
FSU preseason games starting in basketball, where the men defeated Newberry College 74-66, and the women defeated West Georgia 115-46. Uh, the softball team took down Northwest Florida State College, say that two times fast, 14-12. Uh, and there will be more exhibition action. This uh, continues as FSU softball will host Thomas University, while women's hoops will host Flagler. Both games on Thursday at 5 and 6 p.m. respectively. But that's going to do it for this week's edition of Seminal Segment. I've been, still am, and hope to continue as Jack Liaro, William and Jackson run it. Thank you, Jack. Great seminal segment. A lot going on, all the sports colliding with uh, some of the, the exhibitions and fall ball with baseball and that sort of thing, and then the, the, in, the in-season sports. So uh, now that we've covered the Florida State side of things for the rest of the show, talking some professional sports, we'll start with some baseball here. Uh, you're listening to Tomahawk Talk with William Jackson, Jack, and Jacob. Uh Major League Baseball, it's been a while since we've had a chance to talk about it. We're two games into the World Series now, but we didn't get a a chance to talk about the championship series either. Uh, The ALCS, it was the Houston Astros over the New York Yankees in four, Jack. The Yankees didn't even put up a fight against their most hated rival in the entire sport these days. It's unbelievable because the Houston Astros... You know, they're a good team, and so are the Yankees. Uh, you have Aaron Judge and his heroic 62 home run season that hasn't been seen in a while, and before then, even longer. But this Houston Astros team, they're just consistent. They're the closest thing in Major League Baseball to being a dynasty. They seem to end up in the World Series of the ALCS every year for the last half a decade. They are a very, very strong team. Yeah, yeah, Houston's fourth pennant in the last six years. They have become a, a stalwart in the fall classic, but... For the Yankees, they took strikes just in the middle of the zone all series long. Mm-hmm. Uh, no clutch hits. They bring in all these guys. Josh Donaldson laid an egg in that series. Isaiah Kiner-Falefa, yes, got a Yankee fan. He was an embarrassment. He didn't even – I think he started like one game out of the four at shortstop um, and, and all these things. And, and so it's another year for the Yankees where they bring in some of these guys and it just doesn't pan out. You have Aaron Judge couple points off of the triple crown 62 home runs and all that and so i I guess perhaps that's the only thing left to talk about the yankees is are they going to keep judge they should they really really should judge is 30 uh but he did just hit 62 home runs and he did almost win the triple crown and the triple crown is something that is one of the most biggest honors to win in baseball and accomplish what the Yankees continue to do is to bring these renowned names in here that are just not the same ballplayers they were five years before. Josh Donaldson, you mentioned. Matt Carpenter. Just yeah. players that continuously aren't performing for the New York Yankees, and I don't really know what to do with that. I mean, George Steinbrenner did it, whether if they were in their prime or past it. How Steinbrenner's doing it, too. Not really making much sense, but the Yankees need to change something if they want to make it back next year. Yeah, this is not the the Yankees of old where George Steinbrenner, the boss, would would fire managers in the middle of the season and and all these things. Uh, Hal Steinbrenner had been a lot more conservative, not just with free agency spending, but Aaron Boone, the manager, is going to come back after another disappointing end to the season. The the general manager, Brian Cashman, is going to be back. You ask anyone what they think watching this team, and it's probably they need to shake something up, something needs to be changed, but yet all they decide to do is keep it the same. Mm-hmm. That's what they say, right? Insanity is you know doing the same thing, expecting different results. I, I don't see where this gets any better. Even if you keep Judge, what's the what's the end of the line there? I don't know. That's what those guys in pinstripes do. I guess insanity is the perfect way to describe them. <laughs> so the Yankees get swept in the ALCS. The Astros uh, romp there once again. And then in the NLCS, 
one of the, probably the best story in baseball this month. The Phillies over the Padres in five games. Uh, the Phillies are five and zero at home this postseason. Really, it's been an awesome story and how this fan base has embraced the team the last few weeks. And uh, perhaps a consolation prize for San Diego. They don't make it to the World Series, but they beat, uh, as as David Ortiz said, their daddies. Uh, to the north in the Los Angeles Dodgers, the the series prior is that good enough for San Diego? Is that at least a starting point? They are loaded, but you know, Padres fans, yes, that is good enough. You guys didn't think you're going to make it all the way to the NLCS, did you? I mean, the Dodgers are just so dominant. 111 regular season wins, and they went up against this Phillies team. The Padres not breaking 90 wins. The Phillies not breaking 90 regular season wins. But I mean, what are you going to do with these Phillies? They are just putting it on and you know you were talking about the Phillies are 5 and 0 at home this postseason my goodness the Astros you got to be ready for this Philadelphia team and their uh fans in Pennsylvania they're going to bring the noise and they're going to bring the pressure and I mean the arms they go up head to head Houston and Philadelphia the bats Houston powerhouse great offense uh, will Philadelphia keep up offensively? It looks like the answer is going to be yes, and at home, I think the answer is definitely yes. Oh man, it's too bad the game tonight got postponed. Could you imagine a, a sold-out Citizens Bank Park on Halloween night in Philadelphia? Uh, the, the Phillies they had that that wild card win in St. Louis, where the Cardinals basically just blew that that series, handed it right to Philly. But then uh, the the Braves and the NLDS and the Padres and the NLCS, it was the same way where. They were able to steal a game on the road early in the series, and then they locked it, locked it down home. I mean, that's you look at the last hundred years, that that's the formula. Yeah. And you mentioned too that they were the last team in. What was it, eighty-seven wins? Yeah. But it seems like right now they're the best equipped with what the rules are in this month. It's a, it, it playoff baseball is at times a different sport, and I think the Phils are geared that specific way. Yes, they are. The offense: JT Real Muto, Bryce Harper, Reese Hoskins, Alec Bohm. Gene Segura, it goes on and on. They're making names for themselves in October. They weren't making names for themselves other than Harper during the regular season. But, I mean, if Bryce Harper can continue to lead offensively and Aaron Nola and all these pitching and the bullpen's really good, Philadelphia's I, – I like Philadelphia in this series out of nowhere. They are becoming the best 87-win regular season team to ever come into the postseason. And will they pull it off against Houston? It's going to be really, really a fun World Series to watch when I thought it was going to be Houston all the way. But Philadelphia is making noise. Yeah, yeah, the game one win in Houston. And you can't forget about Kyle Schwarber. Kyle Schwarber. I did forget about him. He, he is a guy, I don't know if you remember, in that 2016 series when he was with the Cubs, uh, he was hurt almost all year or for a great portion of the year. He comes back and, you know, lights it up. And I remember I was in high school at the time and uh, – Matulia, um, John Matulia was uh, one of the guys that, or excuse me, Matt Matulia. He, he played Triple A ball up with with the Rays, um, but he's he's a he's a local guy um, from around Lake County, of course. And uh, it appears we're getting a call. We'll, we'll address that here in a second. But uh, he told me he said great hitters are great hitters. It doesn't matter if they're going against little league pitching or if they're going against uh, they're going against. Uh, major league pitching doesn't matter if they've been off a break. Good hitters are good hitters, and they're going to find a way uh, to square up a round ball with a with a with a wooden bat. So, um, I expect him to have some sort of impact on this series. Well, let's take this phone call. Let's see what we got here. All right, you are on Tomahawk Talk. Go ahead. Yeah, wonder if you guys play something from Jimi Hendrix or something off the Blade soundtrack. 
Like the movie Blade, Wesley Snipes. Ever seen it? Are you uh, are you trying to talk to a DJ for for music? You're saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, yeah no I'll, one cares about baseball. Hey, don't listen to him. Sorry about that guy. I'll pass your message along, but uh, thanks for the call there. So we got a, a music request for a little Jimi Hendrix. Maybe we can. I didn't like baseball. How do you not like America's pastime, man? I don't know. I don't know. Weird I mean, stuff there. Weird stuff. Yeah, there, the, an all-time call there. Yeah, really appreciate it. But uh, back to the fall classic. Uh, the World Series tied one game apiece. We mentioned the next three are in Philadelphia. The game gets rained out tonight. And so if it gets played tomorrow, who knows? That happened before in 08 where the, the Rays and the Phils got pushed back multiple days with some rain outs. But uh, the, the pitching, it all moves up now with, with the day off. It was originally tonight going to be Syndergaard v. McCullers. But instead, the Phils are going to are gonna go with Suarez on, uh, on Tuesday and uh, the Astros are going to push up Christian Javier. But what gets really interesting is in game four, instead of going to your you know back-end starters that would only pitch once in the season, in game four, both teams are going to go back to the ace. The Phils are going to go with Aaron Ola, yeah. and the Astros are going to go to Justin Verlander. So, I mean, I don't know, does that give an advantage one way or the other? Because Verlander got uh, kind of beat up a little bit in game one. Yes, he did. Justin Verlander has the worst ERA in MLB World Series starter history. Fun fact there, Justin Verlander is a great pitcher, though. He had one of the greatest seasons of his career, and his career is very well-renowned. It's he, he is a future Hall of Famer, but his World Series pitching hasn't been like his regular season or other playoff pitching. So will Aaron Nola out-pitch him, in a sense? Yes, and I think Philadelphia's bullpen is really, really talented. They held down Houston in order for the Phillies to come back um, in Game 1. So I don't know. I think... Uh, that Houston has some trouble with uh, Aaron Nola coming. He's an ace. Yeah, the uh, for Game 3, what's interesting about that, Ranger Suarez is going to go for Philadelphia. I don't know if everyone knew this or saw this, but the uh, the last season, uh, the last series of the regular season was actually Phillies and Astros. Oh, wow. Ranger Suarez had a tune-up start in Houston, and he got lit up. I think he gave up like six runs in three innings or something like that. Yeah. Against that that Houston lineup, so that that to me puts off some warning bells. And so in the Astros, they push Javier Christian Javier up, uh, replacing Lance McCullers, who did not pitch the season at all until August. He's had problems with walks, so they're they're being more hyper aggressive. Uh, I think they really they feel confident they could take that game three, steal that game back on the road, and then be set up to take it back to Houston. So interested to see how that goes. Um, this series, even if it goes seven, I mean, game seven will be during the FSU-Miami game on Saturday night, or maybe, who knows, with the rain. But uh, who you got? What's your pick now that we're a couple games in? I go with Philadelphia in seven. I think that Houston will take one of these games in Philadelphia. I think Philadelphia will take two. It'll set up um, the Phillies up 3-2. I think game six in Houston, I think the Astros will answer, but I think this Phillies team has a lot of heart, and they have been proving it in October. So Philadelphia in seven. I'll stick with my pick. Last week I went with Houston in six uh, just because the Phillies won game one. I'm not going to back off that necessarily. I think Houston, the, the, the pitching depth is so much better, and uh, I, just, I think that that's going to be the difference. You guys have any other picks? Yeah, I I agreed with um, Astros and six as well. I Houston's just so good. Yeah, they're 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 just so good. It's like playing against the war. They're very similar to the Warriors, it, you know, to explain it in basketball terms. But uh, 
they're just they're just too good. You look down the lineup, you have guys not only that are talented baseball players, but have been there before. And um, I think you know the Phillies are a great story this year, but and I I would personally like to see them win. I cannot stand the Houston Astros at all. Not until every every soul uh, that is part of that 2017 is out of that organization will I ever consider uh, you know cheering for them again. But um, Phillies and six, or excuse me, Astros and six. Book it. That'd be an interesting conversation to have next week if the Astros are to win it. You know, does that uh, put to rest all the cheating stuff? I don't know. I don't even want to get into that necessarily right now, but that is going to be a conversation people will have. But to close out the show, some National Football League uh, sunshine slate where we always begin. Let's start with those Miami Dolphins. It seems like they are back to their winning ways. They win in Detroit. Uh, it was a shootout. I think they like both teams scored on like their first four drives or something like that. Crazy. Uh, Tua went off. Their receiving duo is, is off to like an all-time start. So Jackson, I mean, these Dolphins are five and three. Uh, Tua comes back, and I think everything the ship has stabilized a little bit, right? Yeah, every game that Tua doesn't die in, they win. That's what that's what it seems like to me. And um, once again, I've been saying it since they acquired Tyreek Hill. When you have Tyreek Hill, and you have Jalen Waddle, and you have Mike Gusecki, and you have Raheem Mostert coming out out of the backfield, that's having a pretty solid year, I'd say. You have so many options. You can't unless you're playing man coverage. They're one. They're gonna. Someone's gonna be open. Someone's gonna be open, especially with Mike McDaniel. He's a genius. Yeah, he is a genius. And um, people were saying, "Oh, well, well, Tua can't throw downfield. Tua can't do this." Tyreek Hill, Jalen Waddle, you can use them in so many other ways. It's just running a go route, you know. Uh, you look at what they did uh, with Tyreek Hill in Kansas City on so many misdirection plays, on so many plays where uh, pre-snap motion, where Tyreek Hill's you know running around all over the place, you know, like Steph Curry uh, when he doesn't have the ball. To use, you know, to put it in basketball terms, um, this team is so dynamic, um, and I and honestly, with the defense, the, the Lions, other, you know, other than the last two weeks, the Lions put up a combined six points. Other than that, they were probably one of the best offenses in football. They just couldn't, you know, they couldn't stop the broadside of a barn. So, uh, for the Dolphins to hold the the Lions twenty seven points, especially after going down twenty one to seven and fourteen to nothing early on. As a, as a Dolphins fan, it was very good to see. It was very good to see them respond on the road when the chips were down. So uh, I, my optimism is back up in Miami. Um, I don't know how deep they can go into the playoffs if they make it, but I will say uh, it's looking a lot better than two weeks ago. First time Florida State and Miami, the Miami Dolphins have won uh, – on the same weekend in, what, three or four weeks. So it's, it's, it's nice. That's all you can ask for. They're tied for second in the AFC East with the Jets, and they get they travel to Chicago to play the Bears next week. So that looks to be probably a favorable matchup for Miami. The Bucks on Thursday night, they, lo- they lose 27-22 to to the Ravens. Uh, Lamar Jackson comes in and does his thing. There's not much that I have to say about the Buccaneers. I mean, I could, but why Why would I? And so I'll start with the only good thing that I have, and that is the Gene Deckerhoff call of the week. Gets a first down. Ravens to throw. It is Jackson. He's staying from behind and sacked for the second time. Shaq Barrett and Devin White get to him. How about those two looking for a big play? Yeah, that was uh, courtesy Gene Deckerhoff and the Bucks Radio Network in the final year of his legendary broadcasting career. 
Uh, I don't not on that play, but Shaquille Barrett, I think tore his Achilles or had an Achilles injury, so he's going to miss the rest of the year. That's that's a killer gut shot to the Bucks. I mean, their, their primary pass rusher and all this. Uh, but Tom Brady looks off, still looks off. Nothing has changed. Uh, if anything, it's gotten worse. You look at the headlines now that I guess the the, the divorce with Giselle is real. His personal life is not where it needs to be. We talked about the Steelers' loss where he wasn't at the walkthrough because he was in Manhattan at Rob Robbie Kraft's wedding and all these things. It's a tough scene. Uh, I don't see it getting better anytime soon. And uh, they are no longer first place in the NFC South with what the Falcons have been able to do. Uh, they, they get the Rams at home next week. We'll see uh, what happens from there. And then rounding out the Sunshine Slate, the Jaguars lose again, 21-17 in, at home in London <laughs> to the to the Denver Broncos. Russell Wilson uh, doing his, his high knees on the plane uh, gets his team back in the win column there. The Broncos are 3-5, and five, but uh, it's a tough scene for Jacksonville. They traded away. James Robinson, uh, Trevor Lawrence has a really bad interception or two just about every week, and they look good to start the year, the Dougie, Dougie Peterson era and everything, but uh, two and six, a, a regression back to the mean, who knows, uh, not a great football team as of right now. But other major headlines in the NFL, the, the trade deadline is tomorrow afternoon, probably the blockbuster of the year has already been made, and that was the San Francisco 49ers acquiring Christian McCaffrey from what I guess we thought was a fire sale for the Panthers, but one of the best offensive minds in football in Kyle Shanahan gets uh, probably one of the most versatile and, and useful offensive weapons in McCaffrey. Yeah, and I agree with that. And as a division rival of the 49ers, I don't like to see that. Um, but, you know, Christian McCaffrey, he's a great player when he's not injured. That, I think, has been the biggest issue for his career for the last few years. And so it's going to be interesting to see how this San Francisco offense uses him. Absolutely. I mean, they they beat the Rams again. They've already swept the season series. Shanahan uh, owns McVay, at least in the regular season. Jimmy Garoppolo, maybe some ups and downs. But, um, you know, Debo Samuel was huge for them last year. I think maybe Christian McCaffrey could be that guy again. I mean, it's to that point where when you drop a game plan, like, you can't stop all of them. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, kind of similar to what I was saying about Jalen Waddell and uh, Tyreek Hill, when you just have so many options, not only is it hard to stop them on the field, it's hard to game plan for it, too. It's it's hard to uh, really see. But, but what we need to see from this 49ers team is will they be able to get over the hump in the playoffs? Um you know, with with Jimmy G, how will they be able to, you know, really get that offensive attack, um, you know, not be one-dimensional, right? So, um, I think the 49ers, though, I think this is their year. I think the 49ers will make it back to the NFC Championship. And I'm predicting that they will win the Super or they will go to the Super Bowl. Well, let's let's talk about a powerhouse in the NFC, the Philadelphia Eagles. I don't know if we've given them any any credit yet. They're seven and zero. I think the first time they've done that since two thousand five, I believe, or around there. Uh, the last undefeated team in the NFL. They they've blown the doors off of pretty much everyone they played. They beat the Steelers in that in-state rivalry last week. AJ Brown, you know, maybe one of the most key off-season acquisitions, scored three touchdowns. That awesome celebration where he was just pointing at the Steelers defenders that he had just torched. Absolutely disrespectful, but I mean, when you're going off the way he is, you, you can do whatever you want, I guess. 
Jalen Hurts looks really good. Uh, I don't know. Is anyone beating the Eagles? The Seattle Seahawks will be beating the Eagles <laughs> okay. with MVP quarterback Geno Smith. That That is my lock. MVP Geno. I don't know. Geno has been playing well. I don't know necessarily that I can, can get behind that. But what is the ceiling for Philadelphia? Because it seems like, especially for 7-0, and they're not talked about a ton, but they have not lost yet. Yeah, they got a little... Kind of similar to Florida State's running backs, you know, little three-headed snake. They had it last year a little bit. They got some guys, but Miles Sanders is the leader there, and Jalen Hurts is just a great quarterback. He's starting to make a name for himself of why he should be a top-five quarterback in the NFL. Their defense clearly could do it if they're 7-0. And um, when you talk about A.J. Brown and Devontae Smith, those are big names, and that offense is proving why they're 7-0. They have the names to do it, and here comes Philadelphia. Absolutely. Jacob, I know you're you're keyed up for this. I really do want to get your thoughts. The Seattle Seahawks, their first place in the NFC West at 5-3. and three. They beat the Giants, one of the better teams in the NFC, at least in record, heading them just their second loss of the year. You, said, you just called it Geno for MVP. The defense looks good finally for the first time in a few years. Thank God. Tell us about the Seattle Seahawks right now. Okay, I need everybody in this room right now. Raise your left hand, please. And I need you all to repeat after me. I will not disrespect Geno Smith. I will not disrespect Geno Smith. Thank you. I will disrespect Geno Smith. No, nah, nah. <laughs> I like Geno Smith. I, I think he's a solid guy, a guy that's been around the league for a while. Um, you know, maybe Chad Henney vibes, maybe a little Case bit. Case Keenum that one Case year? Case Keenum vibes, yeah. All right. Even Kirk Cousins for a little bit kind of mm-hmm. had that vibe. Um, but uh, he looks he looks solid, and they're, and they're winning games. When they need to, they're you know, Pete Carroll's been very good at winning games, even the early games, uh, you know, and they have to they have to tr- not only do they have to travel, but they have to deal with the time change. Um, I can't backtrack on my 49ers prediction, but Fair. what I will say is I think I think the I think the Seahawks will probably win nine or ten games. And I really quickly just want to add this, I. I did an NFL playoff. I used one of those NFL playoff predictors, and it had I had Seattle going. Believe it or not, twelve and five. So wow. With that, you know, you know, I I I so want to say that they will be going to the Super Bowl. As as just as much as of a false hope that sounds. Maybe you know we'll meet the 49ers in the NFC Championship, but Seattle owns the 49ers like unequivocally for the last. Eight nine years they've won. I mean, I mean, I believe eighteen out of the last twenty three games with the 49ers. So, you know, I absolutely want to see the Seahawks team succeed, and I would love to see an NFC Championship victory for them, and you know, perhaps a Super Bowl victory. But you know, you the look, AFC is a powerhouse. You look at the schedule down the line. They have to play the Rams twice. Still, they have to play the 49ers. They go to the Chiefs on Christmas Eve. Uh, they play the Buccaneers in Germany in a couple weeks. That'll be an, a fun, interesting one. So yeah, I, I mean, if they if they play like this, certainly they can keep it up. But the NFC West, at least in the preseason, we thought was going to be maybe the best division in football. And uh, the the Seahawks with uh, it's a, a game lead over the 49ers as of right now. The last thing I want to hit one of the biggest stories maybe in sports this year: Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady. Two of the best quarterbacks of all time, certainly of this generation. They're both three and five. I mean, obviously it's a team sport, but their teams are both three and five. They're both both teams are in second place in what we all thought would be easy divisions to win. 
Uh, they're both getting older, and they're both having pretty down years. Rodgers lost on Sunday Night Football uh, to Josh Allen and the Bills last night, and, and Tom Brady, we've well documented what he's been going through. So is this the end of the line for these guys? Is it just uh, a bump in the road? Where are we at? They're old. Yeah, they are. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is – it's almost sad to watch, you know. You know, um, the future is now old, man. That's That's what it keeps – that's what I keep hearing in my head when I think about these guys. But no matter what, I mean, especially, you know, you think about Jordan going back and coming out of retirement and playing for the Bullets or, you know, the Wizards. Um, that's, you know, a little bit of a knock on his career. But Brady still won a Super Bowl in Tampa. It's not like he, you know, went to Tampa. It's not like he came out of retirement, went to Tampa and stunk it up. He won a Super Bowl in uh, the Bay Area. So, uh this this season's not going to hurt his career. It's not going to look how it's not going to you know taint how how people uh, look at him. But with Aaron Rodgers, man, I, I don't have one Super Bowl, and you can blame you know him not having pieces around him. You can blame this. You can blame that. Dude didn't play well in the playoffs. There, you know, was, you know, uh, getting down to the nitty gritty. But you know, two great careers. And uh, it'll be sad to, to watch him go. And who knows how many years left Aaron has, you know, if he stops taking perks. But um, it could uh, – it, it is sad to, to see their decline, that's for sure. Tom Brady, don't forget, he did win a Super Bowl in Tampa at age 43. He's 45. He can make the playoffs. He can bounce back. It is – you're right. It is weird seeing him – he never was a guy to scramble out of the pocket like that, but he scrambled the other week, and it did not look all too great. But unlike Rodgers, Brady has the pieces. Brady also has the rings. He has even more experience than Rodgers. I don't know about Aaron Rodgers and the Green Bay Packers, but I know that the Tampa Bay Buccaneers definitely can still make the playoffs and make those fans happy there. That is that is where those two guys take a fork in the road. For the Buccaneers, the path to the postseason is much easier. Uh, they're only looking up at the Atlanta Falcons, who are 4-4, four and four, in whom they've already beat once this year. They'll get again later in Atlanta. Uh, the Falcons have a definite ceiling. The Buccaneers do not. And so, the, But with the Packers, also 3-5. and five. Packers have lost four in a row, by the way. Bucks have lost three in a row. But the Packers are looking up at the 6-1 and one Vikings. They don't look like they're going to slow down anytime soon. Their only loss is in Philadelphia to the undefeated Eagles, uh, and the Vikings have already beat Green Bay this year. Uh, but what I find maybe most interesting of all is, yes, they're old, maybe a little bit decline in play, but I think what's causing the most issues is the off-the-field stuff. Brady not being around the team. Um, it seems like he's kind of just been yelling at odds with his teammates all year on the field. And then for Green for Green Bay, Aaron Rodgers, he goes on Pat McAfee's show every Tuesday and complains about his receivers and says they need to be cutting playing time and they need to simplify the offense because guys aren't picking it up. When you take it this public and you're just not around your team doing what you need to do, I mean, I don't know if these guys think they can just go by their legacy and think that they don't have to do what every other quarterback does, but I think that that's a big part of it as well, the teammate aspect of it. It reminds yeah, that that doesn't help at all. Like it, it doesn't help your case to go to go public with that kind of stuff. Um, but who knows? Maybe he's thinking that you know maybe these guys will you know really get it if if he goes public. I I just don't see the benefit of it. It just seems childish, really. Sorry, Jacob. Go ahead. You know you're fine. Uh, the Rodgers going on the Pat McAfee show, it reminds me a little bit of the 2017 Steelers where we had uh, Ben Roethlisberger going on you know talk radio shows and complaining about his teammates. 
And for those who don't remember, the 2017 Steelers, I believe they were 13-3, and 12-4, and 4, somewhere around there. And then they lost in the first round to the or the second round to the Jaguars and a lot of that was attributed to the drama surrounding the team and Ben going on the radio show and just absolutely just going into his teammates for little mistakes that were happening on the team and so you know I will say I'm not the biggest Rodgers fan as a matter of fact I, I like Rodgers the, the person but as the player I despise him only because of there was a divisional loss with the Seahawks a couple of years back that's my only reason but going against your teammates on a public radio show, it's not really the best look. It's it's not a well-kept secret that these guys have always been divas, but you look back and before it was, you know, you could talk to the local writer in the newspaper or you could, you know, whatever. But now it's not just the radio shows, as you mentioned, but the social media. Pat McAfee has a, has a you know, basically a web show. Uh, there's all these places. Everyone has a podcast now that you can go on and complain about people. Draymond Green has a podcast. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, we have a podcast. Tom we Hawk have a Talk. Podcast. Everyone has a podcast. So, yeah, I think that this is just what it looks like now where it's just coming to the surface. We're seeing it more. And uh, to tie it back into FSU, you know, you want a reason to feel good about this team. You don't see that kind of stuff with Florida State under Mike Norvell. They operate as a team. They never throw each other under the bus. There's none of that kind of discord. And uh, you, you look at the contrast there, and you have to feel good about it. But that's all we have for this week. Uh, this has been Tomahawk Talk for myself, William Haynes, Jackson Bakich, Jacob Smith, Jack Arducer, our producer, Jack Oliaro. Uh, no new release this week, but you are listening to WVFS Tallahassee, the voice of Florida State.